Hello, my name is Douglas Wilson. I'm the author of The Light from Behind the Sun, and this is Pints with Jack. Read something three times in Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas, and you will find you have forgotten most of it by next week. Read it once in Lewis, and it will stay with you forever. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 3, C.S. Lewis for Beginners. After Hours with Dr. Lewis Marcos. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And as I mentioned in our inaugural episode this season, we're reading Out of the Silent Planet. And that we'd also occasionally be interviewing guests who have written books about the Ransom Trilogy. But that day is not today. In this episode, we have back on the podcast a former guest of the show, Dr. Lewis Marcos, to talk about his most recent book, C.S. Lewis for Beginners, which I quoted at the start of the show. So today, we're going to hear about what motivated Dr. Marcos to write this book, and what readers can expect to find between its covers. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with our guest, Dr. Lewis Marcos is a professor of English and a scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. He teaches courses on film, on the classics, British and Romantic Victorian poetry and prose, as well as on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. His first appearance on Pints for Jack was when we were reading through The Great Divorce, and he spoke to us about afterlife in the Western poetic tradition. And he returned in Season 4 to talk about his book, Myth Made Fact, about how we can read Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Dr. Lewis Marcos, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Thanks. They say third time's a charm. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> well, today I am enjoying a nice cup of Earl Grey tea. Uh, are you drinking anything? I hate to be boring, David, but it's the heat has returned. And so I have a big glass of ice water. So <laughs> nothing fancy. I, I almost pulled out my throat coat, which is my favorite organic tea, but it was just too hot. So we're going with ice water. I don't know if that upsets a British guy. They haven't invented ice in Britain yet, but we like our ice. Well, yes, all of our drinks need to be served at room temperature. Uh, no, that's, <laughs> that's totally allowable. For, for a Texas-based man, I will allow some water. So even, even with water, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, it's been a while. What have you been up to since you were last on the show? I'm always keeping busy. I, I try to balance between writing books that I sort of initiate and come up with but then I always try, if somebody specifically asks me to do something, I try to fit that in. So lately, I've had the Myth Made Fact and the From Plato to Christ book. Those were sort of follow-ups to my From Achilles to Christ book. That's my passion. Mm -hmm. The other thing I've been doing over the last three years is writing a series that I call Ancient Voices. First, there was Ancient Voices, an inside look at classical Greece, then classical Rome, and then the early church. And the early church was just published, I think, this summer, actually, uh, not that long ago, this past summer. Um, but in between working on those, uh, I was approached by this wonderful uh, publishing house called Four Beginners. And they've published dozens and dozens of books. They're all called, sometimes it's a name like Plato for Beginners. Sometimes it's Deconstruction for Beginners. But what makes it unique is not only trying to write a book that is pretty comprehensive and accessible to the layman, but it's also heavily illustrated and in a sort of comic book style. And it doesn't look like comic book. It's got text, but interspersed between the text 
are comic book looking characters, you know, kind of uh, doodles or caricatures, we might say. Uh, and mm -hmm. a lot of them are illustrative, but a lot of them are funny. And basically, I write the book <laughs> first, and then they assign an illustrator to it. And the illustrator goes through, and then they run it by me. And I liked all of them. I, I suggested a couple more. And it was kind of exciting because I said, it would be really nice to have a picture that looked like A, B, C, D. And out it comes beautiful. So that was actually very, very exciting. So this gave me a chance. And I just published J.R. Tolkien for beginners. If we want to do that another day, it just came out. Um, and they've kind of rushed it in the fall for the Rings of Powers. But the C.S. Lewis book has been out for about a year. And it allowed me to go back and sort of reread everything and try to present it in a more chronological order. I've done a lot of books on Lewis that are often thematic. Uh, this was a chance to sit down and see if I could convey to the lay reader that I could convey the full depth and breadth of Lewis. Uh, you know, he wrote in every genre, David. It's kind of amazing. And, and, and mm. you know, sometimes, you know, when you have a word count, it's a little bit harder because it's, I've got whatever, 1,500 words to take up this great book by C.S. Lewis. Let's see if I can get to the heart of it, come up with some bullet points. And even though I wrote the text before the, the pictures, I knew it was going to be pictures. So I made sure to have very short paragraphs and I tried to be as visual as I could when I was writing it. So I think that makes the, the writing itself more dynamic and visual. I don't know if you know this, David, but a lot of people say, and, and I agree, that Lewis became a better writer by having to do the broadcast talks, right? Those were the, the, the speeches he gave over the BBC during the Battle of Britain when London was being bombed from the air. And every one of the episodes was 20 minutes. Lewis knew that people were listening rather than reading. And to me, this was Lewis's blog experience, right? I actually think I became a better writer by writing 500 word or 1000 word blogs. I always write them and polish them. I don't throw them online. I refuse to do that. But the, the sort of skill or discipline of conveying a great deal of information in a short, accessible way, I think it made Lewis a much better writer. I love Pilgrim's Regress, but that's a pretty hard read, as is Allegory of Love. But the books he wrote afterwards, I think, got more and more accessible, but also more vivid, simple in the good sense of the word. So I did this because I was asked, but I also thought it would be a great exercise to try to boil everything down into short chapters. And it, and it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start digging into the contents of your book, you dedicated it to three founders of classical Christian schools. Would you mind just saying a few words about the dedication? And for those who are unfamiliar with classical education, what exactly is it? Really, my greatest passion these days, one is bringing Athens and Jerusalem together, hence myth made fact, Plato to Christ, Achilles to Christ. But the other passion, and they really go together, is the rise in classical Christian education, which I think will be the salvation of this country. Uh, we desperately need uh, an education that returns to a real reading of the great books and being unapologetic when we say great books, right? Reading and wrestling with the classics. Now, we're not reading them in their original language, but these schools are learning Latin. Some of them do Greek, but Latin is the real foundation of the classical Christian movement. I have a son who is teaching classical Christian school and a daughter who is teaching in a classical charter school, which means it's public, 
but it still follows a classical model and does a darn good job of smuggling theology in whenever it can. (laughs) So to me, what we desperately need is this return to the classics, to an education that tries to balance wisdom and eloquence and that puts a heavy focus focus on virtue, not on values, but on virtues like the classical and theological virtues. And I spend more time than anything speaking for classical Christian schools, for graduations, and for conferences. And the biggest classical conference is the ACCS, or Association of Classical and Christian Schools. And once a year, they do a big conference called Repairing the Ruins. That's a quote from Milton's on education. Uh, And I basically have been one of the speakers every year for, I don't know, about seven or eight years now, and hopefully forever, uh, because it brings together people that are hungry. And I want to tell you, David, one of the reasons why I love speaking for classic Christian schools, aside from believing in their mission, is I pretty much gave up speaking at pure academic conferences. And I'll tell you why. Because most of them, nobody is there to learn anything. They're not there to sit at the feet of Homer, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare, Milton. They're there to feel superior to them or to deconstruct them. Now, not everybody, but that's the tenor and it's only gotten worse. And I say, why am I going to a place where no one's there to learn? I want to go to a place where people are eager to learn and they want to learn together and they want to wrestle with great ideas. Now, one of the sort of founders of the modern classical Christian uh, thing is Douglas Wilson, a controversial issue, but somebody who was one of my great heroes, Doug Wilson, out there in Moscow, Idaho, Idaho. And he uh, kind of started the whole thing. But the president, I also mentioned, is David Goodwin. And he's been the president for many years, does a great job, co-wrote a book with, called, with Pete Hegseth called The Battle for the American Mind, which is an excellent book for anyone that cares about education. Uh, and then I added Tom Spencer. He is the behind the scenes administrative guy, but he has been so gracious to me, to my family. He does everything, uh, takes very little applause. And I felt I wanted to kind of put him together with that trilogy because they have, you know, I I always try to be positive and tell administrators when they're doing a good job because administrators are people who only hear gripes and they never get kudos. At least as teachers, we get some kudos from our students. Uh, And so to me, a good administrator is someone who facilitates teachers to use their gifts. And so we need them. And in fact, as you probably know, administration is listed as a gift, a spiritual gift uh, in the New Testament. Uh, So the three of them there, I feel that they are bringing back exactly the kind of education that Lewis and Tolkien and all of those that Charles Williams that they fought for. I would also include people like Dorothy Sayers and G.K. Chesterton. These are folks that are believe in an education that understands that students are capable of reading difficult things and wrestling with them and growing in wisdom and eloquence and virtue. And so to me, these are folks at the ACCS, there's also the SC, a lot of good groups, but these are the people that are living out the kind of education Lewis received and the kind of education he passed down. And the word tradition in Latin means to hand down. And so Lewis and ACCS are people that have handed down, and I try to do that myself, are handing down the legacy that was given to them. So we are caretakers. We're not corporations or businesses. 
We are caretakers of knowledge, wisdom, virtue that we then pass down to the next generation. Although I would expect you to do that in Greek with paradosis. Uh, it it is great. They, and they try, but it's a little <laughs> bit harder to get the Greek in. But the best ones will offer, you know, a year of Greek. And of course, my first love is Greek. Uh, but um, they are certainly teaching Greek wisdom <laughs> because all, you know, mm-hmm. from, from Homer to uh, Sophocles to Plato, Aristotle, I mean, they, they, this is the uh, Herodotus, Thucydides are very much at the core of classical education. You said that you want to bring Jerusalem and Athens together. One of the books which I keep pitching to authors that I meet is I want somebody to write a book, probably a dialogue, uh, between Tertullian, who famously said, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Uh, And so he very much rejected a lot of Greek wisdom. And Origen, who arguably embraced it a little bit too heavily at the expense of Revelation. And then maybe a third character like Thomas Aquinas, maybe them all meeting in the afterlife and talking about their approaches. I think that would be fun. Well, you know who has to write that is Peter Kraft. He's up there in age, but he's still going strong. I've pitched it to him. And um, he says, you know, maybe in 20 books or so. So who knows? Maybe you'll get to that next year. Yeah, I know. we got to get there. But, but it is important. I mean, you know, I'm one of my uh, – Plato to Christ has a chapter on origin in my book called uh, Atheism on Trial. talks about Tertullian. See, Tertullian, oddly enough, is a little bit like Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in mm, one sense, fiery. attacks the humanist. And yet – his work is filled with references to every great humanist writer out there. Yeah. So, and, and we've often, and, you know, David, we often think of the Calvinists as being against classical education because, you know, they're the ones, total depravity. How can we learn anything from pagans? But you need to understand that the architects of the modern classical Christian movement, at least in America, are all reformed Presbyterians, like Doug Wilson, mm-hmm. all of them, because they understand what a lot of Americans forgot, too many, I don't know about England, but too many Americans have the idea that total depravity means utter depravity. That's not what it means. It means every part of us is subjected to the fall. Our reason is not perfect, but Aquinas also did not believe reason was perfect. That's why he always begins with authority. So that's a misunderstanding of Aquinas. But anyway, for a long time, Calvinists in America didn't want to talk about natural law. That was too Catholic, first of all, and that seemed to go against total depravity. But once they started reading Calvin a little more closely and understood how committed Calvin was to the difference between general revelation and special revelation, they understood that the pagan classics have the best of of general revelation, and at their highest, they point forward to the fullness of revelation. And of course, Tertullian had a fully classical education as did so many. And like I said, I just came out with that book on the early church. And when you read the early apologist, David, Justin Martyr is the best known. They are always not only quoting words like logos, but they considered Socrates to be one of the first martyrs for monotheism. Now he didn't know Yahweh, certainly didn't know Jesus, but he didn't even know Yahweh, but he still was understanding the idea of the logos of goodness, truth, and beauty. And at the foundation of every classical school is are those three transcendentals, good, the true, and the beautiful, that will come up again and again and again. Uh, so, it, I mean, they will meet in the middle. There is a really good book called The Great Tradition, uh, edited by a guy named Gamble, that puts, it's a huge reader, 700 pages of the whole classical tradition with you know, Aristotle and, and, and Plato and, and uh, you know, Tertullian, I mean, I'm sorry, 
Quintilian and Isocrates all the way up to C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers. Uh, so it's a really great book. Well, let's talk about your book, C.S. Lewis for Beginners. For whom did you write it? And were you uh, pitching it at a particular age or level of education? Well, again, I, I kind of uh, answer to the call, but it's meant to be something that can be basically what I wanted to write was something that would be accessible to someone that's new to Lewis, but also enrich someone who already knows Lewis well. So mm-hmm. kind of what I'm doing is I'm giving the broad overview, but then in each chapter, I'm highlighting a few things that, you know, even the person that's read Lewis lots of times may not have noticed or may not have noticed the prevalence of that theme, either in the work or in Lewis himself. So I, I, I'm always trying to have depth and breadth uh, and challenge people. But I mean, I think this is accessible to a high school or even, even you know, if, if you're a middle schooler and you go to a classical Christian school, you can read this. <laughs> They're really bright. It's unbelievable uh, what they can read. Uh, but it really is, you know, I, just like Lewis, you know, I'm staying away from the jargon, but I'm also trying to map things out and give a sort of overview of the different ideas. And see, one of the things you understand when you read Lewis, I'm trying to remember who said it. It might have been Walter Hooper, but he said, that everything Lewis knew went into everything he wrote. So almost it's any possible. book you read by Lewis gives a glimpse of the fullness of his education. Uh, and there are certain ones like sort of like that hideous strength has f- absolutely every single thing that Lewis ever thought about anything. <laughs> and it's a little bit of a mishmash, but I love the book. So, so that's kind of what I'm doing. You know, you're, you're getting the, the mile high view, but you're also trying to get into Lewis's mind's and the concerns that keep coming up again and again. Uh, And I decided, you know, we talked about it, and I decided to go with a straight chronological approach. So after my introduction, laying down what made Lewis great, sort of, then I've got a biography of all the things that helped to shape Lewis into the person he became, the person who could become not only a great apologist, but a great fiction writer and a great academic. Uh, It's very rare to have all three come together with with actually equal strength. and then I move chronologically through the books. Uh, I don't devote one to the, the poetry. Some of the poetry is fun, but that's not what made Lewis famous. So I mention the poems now and then when they come up, but I'm really focused on Lewis, the prose writer. Um, and every major book gets a chapter, uh, but some of the academic works I put together, right? I, I gave a whole chapter to Preface to Paradise Lost, which I think is accessible uh, to, uh, to uh, the discarded image. Uh, which is about the medieval cosmological model uh, and also something called an experiment in criticism that I've noticed lots of people that are not academics really, really like that book uh, for helping them to understand how to read. Uh, but other than that, everything gets a book. Now, this took me a long time to figure out, well, what do I do with these essays? Because Lewis is a great, great essay writer and we're still finding new ones, um, particularly new book reviews. So I didn't want a whole chapter. They didn't really fit together. So what I came up with, and it fits well with Pints for Jack, is you know how you go to a fancy restaurant and what wine will go together with your food, right? So I wanted to match together, if you're reading this book, here are some essays that kind of parallel it or will draw out themes. And this way I got a chance to highlight uh, most of Lewis's greatest and most, you know, perennial essays. So that, that was a little bit different about the book. And like I said, I go just straight through chronologically, uh, right to the end of his life. Hmm. That quotation you gave, I believe it was from Owen Barfield, 
who said I think about how Lewis's ideas basically spread everywhere, regardless of the book. And on the show, we have a constant competition with Andrew, but it doesn't really matter what we're reading. Andrew's always going to refer it to till we have faces, and we're going to say, "Oh, this oh, is really? an allusion to the Great Divorce." Um, so I, I think that's oh, fine. It's true, yeah. <laughs> and there's actually a new podcast that's started fairly recently called Lesser Known Lewis, and they're going through his essays, uh, and so it's. It's been a real education for me because it's probably now the, the part of Lewis's corpus that I've read the least because we had a – up until recently, it was his poetry, but then we had poetry months, so I just inhaled all of that. Well, I remember getting from my son – I think it's called – I think it's called The Collected Essays of C.S. Lewis. You can buy a gigantic book, though. It's hard to find now. But you can also buy the audiobook version where it's, I don't know, I think it was 15 CDs. Of course, if you have a car that can play a CD, which you probably get a download now. <laughs> um, but the uh, but it's really good. And the, the reader is very, I don't remember his name, but he's very, very good, very precise. And he goes through it and he does, because the collected book version does tell you where each thing appeared the first time. And I'm glad that he reads that part before he reads the essay. So if you're somebody that has a commute or maybe you're one of those people, all these kids now like to walk with their, their iPod, uh, I, that's a good way to work your way through most of them. I think the only thing not there are the real academic essays, but most of the other essays are there, uh, and it's very, very good. Yeah, it is available on Audible, and uh, if you go to pintsofjack.com slash essays, you'll find all of the references as well as links to any podcast I've found that actually talks about that particular essay. And we should be having the lesser-known Lewis guys on the show later this season because we're reading Out of the Silent Planet. And so I want to do the essays that are related to that, like Religion and Rocketry, uh, The All-Seeing oh, yeah. Eye. Um, so yeah, the crossover is wonderful. And I really did like the way you integrated that in your book. You're actually saving me and those guys an awful lot of work because <laughs> we, we we want to try and try and cross over as much as we can. And you basically gave us a blueprint for it. Oh, good. Thanks. And that, that's what I was hoping because the the, the wisdom, it's just... It, it's it's amazing. I mean, you know, you want to start by getting God on the dock. Those are the best collected uh, apologetical essays. Uh, and then you certainly want to get the weight of glory and other addresses. I think that's one of the best ones. And then from there, there's so many others. There's one called On Stories uh, that, that's got lots of good stuff about, about literature. Uh, and then there are more academic ones. Uh, but like I said, he never lets you down. I mean, the, and it's nice to have essays that you can just sit and read in one sitting. Uh, and mm -hmm. dig out because again Lewis is just zeroed in on something and it's wonderful. Now you mentioned in the book that you go through Lewis's works in chronological order to introduce them to the beginner. Do you think that's the best way to read them or would you suggest a different plan? Well I mean you certainly want to pair the problem of pain with the with a grief observed. Those are the ones that are separated by uh, 20 more years. So that's helpful. Mm. Now, the good thing is that when I wrote this, even though Mere Christianity is not published till about 1950, so, so around there, of course, it begins with the broadcast talks. So when I follow the chronological order, I put it under broadcast talks. And it, it, it is the one important thing about the chronological way of doing it is you'll see how Lewis becomes better and better at conveying difficult ideas, right? Also, you'll realize how unbelievably rich were the World War II years. With, with the mm. exception of the Narnia books, much of the greatest stuff that we think of Lewis, the most sui generis, right, of its own genre, things like screw tape letters or great divorce, nothing else like it. 
They're all happening between 39 and 45. It's unbelievable how rich he was at that time. And that's before he was given his chair of medieval and Renaissance literature over at Cambridge. He was still working pretty hard as a teacher. Uh, and bad, you know, he was also, uh, many of his essays started as speeches he gave to the RAF or other people, which of course he did for free. Uh, and so that kept him very busy and going into London to, to do the broadcast talks. Uh, but it was something he felt he needed to do. So it's good to see that. Uh, then also, if you read it chronologically, you can read it. And of course, Andrew Lazo will love this. Uh, you can read all of the stuff that seems to bear the influence of joy together. Now, obviously, the mm-hmm. most obvious one is Till We Have Faces. But The Four Loves is something that seems to bear some influence. Certainly, his book uh, called uh, Reflections on the Psalms was probably influenced by Smoke on the Mountain. It sounds totally different. But Joy wrote a book called, so it's, it's still worth reading, a reflection on, on, on the, the Ten Commandments. But I think that influenced Lewis. Of course, there would be no grief observed if it wasn't for her. Uh, so I think some of those later works uh, that are a little bit different. Uh, and uh, basically what I did in, in my book with some of those later works, like Letters from Malcolm, uh, that's actually after Joy died. But some of those works, I just, all right, I'm just going to choose 10 things to highlight and go through it. Uh, because some of them have a little bit of an episodic feel uh, as you go through them. But it, it is good to see, you can see a little bit of arc in Lewis. Now, we have to do away with that really terrible rumor. Okay? Any C.S. Lewis person knows that in the broadcast, I'm sorry, when he was at the uh, uh, Oxford Socratic Club and they debated, right? He had, he'd have an atheist and a Christian read a paper. Or when he couldn't get an atheist that was brave enough, he'd have two different Christians reading. But whatever. What everybody wanted was Lewis to get up and cross-examine, uh, you know, the atheist or the or at least the liberal theologian. But there was only one time when Lewis was bested, right? And he wrote a book called Miracles. And in book three, he wasn't quite as precise in his terminology as he could have been. And Elizabeth Anscombe, who, by the way, was a believing Catholic, but Elizabeth Anscombe took him down. And by the way, Lewis revised chapter three of Miracles, which is the single most confusing chapter in any book Lewis ever wrote. So he probably shouldn't have listened to her. But Elizabeth did read it and said, OK, you did a good job. Right. So but anyway, there's this feeling that after that, Lewis sort of abandoned logical apologetics and only turned over to fiction which is ridiculous. First of all, he wrote the whole Ransom trilogy before that, right? More importantly, though, Lewis had already done everything he wanted to do. He wrote Mere Christianity, uh, I mean, broadcast talks. And I, I love that. I think I mentioned it here. I love the fact that, okay, Thomas Aquinas, right? The way he writes, he makes a proposition and then gives the chief objections to it. So here is the proposal, God exists. And in the whole history of the world, Aquinas can only think of two logical refutations to God, right? Only two. One of them is the problem of pain. And the other is that everything can be explained by natural physical processes so we don't need God. So Lewis writes a book called The Problem of Pain. And Lewis writes the book about miracles showing that there are plenty of things in our world that demand something supernatural or metaphysical. And so it's like, what else is he going to write? And Lewis often had to be coaxed into writing his apologetics anyway, uh, partly because he felt, oh, maybe I'm not enough of a philosopher. Um, so, uh, again, if you read it chronologically, you'll realize that there's lots of 
literary stuff before the Anscombe debate. And there still is apologetics afterwards, but in a different form. Uh, and thank God he gave us the, so to speak, literary apologetics of the Chronicles of Narnia. So those are some reasons why I think it's helpful to see Lewis grow from one to the next. And I think also the clustering of books, when you know that the Screwtape Letters, Perilandra, and Preface to Paradise Lost are all being written around the same time, yeah. you start noticing, oh, this is what he's thinking about. And then you go to his letters and find, yep, that's what he was talking about with his friends as well. <laughs> it really is. I mean, yeah, if you, if you read Perilandra, you have to read Preface to Paradise Lost and Problem of Pain, because yeah, Problem of Pain includes uh, his own myth of the fall, which is heavily based on Milton's Paradise Lost. So you, you do start seeing, and of course, the other obvious one is Abolition of Man and uh, That Hideous Strength, which come very close to one another and clearly influenced each other. So that's helpful too, to see how we're getting into Lewis's mind and how it works and how it makes connections. Now, before we leave the question of chronological ordering, uh, I, I do have to reassure our readers that Dr. Marcos is certainly not advocating reading the Narnian chronological ordering of the books that he insists on ah, the publication you. order. Just just in case anybody did wonder. No, that is the single worst publishing decision since Gutenberg. It amazes me every time. It it just what do you do? Well, we could spend a whole time on there. But no, we we do take them in their order chrono, chronologically in terms of the order of publication, right? Not mm. Narnian chronology. Ah yeah. Crazy stuff like that, but the uh, but yeah. So so we we do treat everything in, in, in its proper order that way, and it's important to to see that uh, and where they come. Uh, and you know, with till we have faces coming about the same time as the last battle uh, is fascinating as well. So you go through the books in chronological or publication order, and you dedicate a chapter basically to each. What is it that you actually discuss? in each chapter? Do you just outline the content? You've, you've said that you, you pick a few things, a few themes that, that come up in that book. Right. How do you actually uh, unpack each one? Yeah, that's, that's what I decided to do. I start with a fairly quick overview. I want to give plot summary just in case people haven't read it and just go over all the main characters. And then after that, I start breaking down sometimes specific characters like Aslan, but also sometimes specific themes that run through the work uh, and that, that draw it out because I can't talk about everything, but I give a quick enough, I give a, a detailed enough overview that you can then follow the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the deeper stuff. Uh, and then, and then also you can, uh, you know, move on to uh, later things uh, like the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Uh, I have a section on Aslan and the witch, not only as characters, but how Lewis displays good versus evil and how it's there. And then I talk about other themes about the stone table and, and obviously the replay of the gospel, right? But then when I get to Prince Caspian, I spend a, a long time on Caspian as a character and what he embodies. But then I talk a lot about Uncle Moraz and what kind of a villain he is. I'd like to say that he's less Hitler and more uh, uh, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's not just I'm a, you know, a, a usurper that's going to take all the power, he also wants to silence the, basically the religion of Narnia, the traditions of Narnia. He wants it. He's the first example of cancel culture. Then I zero in on Trumpkin and Nicobrick <laughs> because a lot of people don't realize that at the beginning of the novel, Trumpkin and Nicobrick are very similar. They are both, we would say, atheists. 
They do not believe in Aslan or the White Witch or the four children from the earth. It's all stuff and nonsense to him. He's also very cynical and very skeptical. And yet, over the course of the novel, Trumpkin will grow to become one of the greatest heroes of Narnia, whereas Nicobrick will become more cynical, more skeptical, will try to bring back the White Witch, and will die a dishonorable death. And, okay, I, I understand why the movie, Prince Caspian, had to change things. You know, Hollywood doesn't like this four-chapter flashback. They also want to get the four children and Caspian, the adult Caspian, there right away from the beginning. And so what happens is we lose the flashback. But what that means is we lose the innumerable clues that Lewis gives us that Trumpkin will be good and Nicobrick will go bad. For instance, when they first meet Caspian, Nicobrick wants to kill him. Trumpkin says, no, he's a guest. We can't do that. He honors hospitality or xenia, uh, as the ancient Greeks called it. Uh, another time, Tr Nicobrick wants to kill Dr. Cornelius because he's a half and half, half human, half dwarf. Where Trump can say, yeah, can't, he can't blame his heritage. It's not his fault, right? Uh, there's another time, even more important, where Nicobrick wants to get help from some hags. And Trumpkin says, no. In other words, Trumpkin says, no, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. I also like to mention that only Lewis, and I'm a Baptist here, so only Lewis, we know that Nicobrick is going to be the bad guy because he doesn't smoke and he refuses to dance. Mm -hmm. I just think that's very funny. Um, but what <laughs> I'm drawing out things like that or Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I spent a long time in the magician's book and, and also they, they kind of messed that up in the movie too uh, and focus on different themes. When I get to the magician's nephew, I try to explain how both uh, Uncle Andrew and, and, and uh, Jadis are basically Machiavellian villains. They're, they're what, we, what, what we call uh, Ubermensch or Superman. Uh, and I show how Lewis in a simple children's novel can expose the danger of, you know, Nietzsche's Ubermensch or Overman or Superman. So things like that I try to do and just draw out maybe two or three themes uh, that I think are are important and memorable and, and often, you know, that have some kind of apologetical content I'll pull out as well. Now, once someone has read your book, do they graduate from being a beginner? And what would you recommend somebody start reading once they finish your book? Now, I would have put this, but I already published it in the book I wrote called A to Z to Narnia with C.S. Lewis. And in that book, I end with a, well, I always end with an annotated bibliography, and I do that here, um, where, you know, where I actually talk about it. You know, I call it a bibliographical essay. But I would say the best place to begin either Narnia or begin with the screw tape letters. I think that's the best place to begin. I think it's the most accessible. It will draw you in. After that, you can move on to mere Christianity. Uh, I would hold off miracles. That's a little bit harder. I would definitely hold off Pilgrim's Regress. That's really, really hard. Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy is a little bit difficult. Make sure you've read at least four or five books by Lewis, and then you'll be ready to say, how did he become this C.S. Lewis? But I wouldn't start with his autobiography. I, I think it's accessible, more accessible than Pilgrim's Regress, but it's still a little bit different. It's basically like reading the Confessions of St. Augustine. It's a literary, theological, philosophical autobiography. So I'd wait a little bit. Again, the, 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 the most accessible books to begin with are Screwtape Letters and Great Divorce and Mere Christianity and the uh, Chronicles of Narnia are a good place to begin. Uh, and then you can read the Ransom Trilogy, but, but be careful. I, I love them all, but 
I also teach Tolkien. So I've had this conversation with so many people. Do you like Tolkien? Oh, yeah. You read The Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah. I've read it all. And then I inevitably I say, and have you read The Silmarillion? And the answer is always, I started it. <laughs> I've had so many conversations with people. Oh, yes, I read Out of the Silent Planet. Oh, yes, I read Paralandra. Oh, I started that hideous strength. Now, you mm-hmm. do need to read that hideous strength at some point because it is extremely important on so many levels, and I spent time on it. But hold that off. Read, get more Lewis under your belt uh, from there. Again, Problem of Pain is a very, in fact, Lewis's success in the Problem of Pain at being understandable to the lay reader is one of the reasons they asked him to do the broadcast talks. It was really problem of pain that made, you know, the guy over there say, oh, this guy can do it. And they brought him in. And again, those books are read, are are written close. Then you can start deciding your interest. If you're somebody that likes reading devotionals, then take a stab at uh, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. It's really a very much a devotional book. Uh, If you're interested if you've heard, like everybody has heard that uh, sermon about the three Greek words for love, we've all heard it 10,000 times, especially if you're evangelical, <laughs> uh, Lewis adds storge, which is the Greek word for affection. That's kind of fun. Uh, again, don't start with Till We Have Faces. I love that book, but it's very intimidating to many people. So wait and hold off a little bit, but I hope you'll read it. I mean, Lewis went back and forth as to whether Paralandra or that, or Till We Have Faces is his favorite book. Of course, Lazo will say it's his favorite book, um, but he goes back and forth between the two of them. Far and away, my best book. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful book. I, I do love it. And, and uh, But I don't know if they'll ever make a movie out of it. I don't know if any actress wants to play someone who's unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, isn't there quite a tradition in Hollywood of absolutely gorgeous actresses putting on prosthetics and makeup to make well, themselves that's look less true. attractive? I mean, Charlize Theron made herself look incredibly hideous. But uh, better than that, though, was was Hillary uh, Nicole Kidman. I'm sorry, yeah, Nicole Kidman did a great job portraying uh, Virginia Woolf wearing a big, ugly, mm. uh, big nose. Uh, she did a much better job uh, than Charlize Theron. Oh. But uh, but yeah, they they they, they tend to do that. Uh, and it's pretty good, but yeah, maybe maybe one of them could do that. I don't know who would who would be a good. Yeah, they're, they're, she's probably too old now. There's that one actress who did a really good BBC version of uh, of uh, uh, Jane Eyre, who did a really good job being very very. Plain. Oh, I know who uh, you mean. Yes, I remember her name. She she she's she's been in that uh, uh, his Dark Materials series on HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, she could probably do it. I can't remember her name right now, uh, but she's she's able to go back and forth like that. Um, but it would be nice if somebody could do it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just Absolutely. upset that they stop before making the silver chair because <laughs> Line of Witch in the Wardrobe, that's great. But Prince Caspian, because of the flashback, it was hard. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is super episodic. And so they had to invent the whole crazy thing with the swords. But silver chair is a straightforward quest narrative has a beginning, a middle and an end. Hollywood's great at that. I, I just wish they hadn't stopped short. And now that great actor who played, uh, 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 what's his name? Eustace uh, Scrub. Uh, yeah, Eustace Scrub is too too old, but he would have been perfect playing Eustace Clarence Scrub, uh, and he almost deserved it. Was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of those books that you mentioned, I when people ask me about Pilgrim's Regress, I say you can read it if you want, but definitely make sure that you get the Wade annotated edition. Because at least yes, there explains what all of these things uh, actually refer to. Or at least get 
The second edition where Lewis added what are called glosses along the top mm. to tell you the main theme. And, 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 and the later afterward Lewis wrote helps you. I mean, there is great stuff. There are, you know, basically what you call nuggets. You know, he, got, he, he gets the gold and you can really see how his mind works and all. Uh, but, you know, if you're intimidated by it, go read another book and come back to it later. I mean, there's so, or, or go to the essays and read them. There's so much stuff that's directly accepted. And eventually, please read Miracles. That's a little bit harder. Just skip chapter mm-hmm. three. That's all. Uh, because <laughs> there is such important stuff in there about the nature of God and all that. Like here, I think I mentioned it here because it's one of the greatest things. Lewis says, why is it? And this is maybe even worse in England even than it is in America. Why is it that whenever we talk about God or heaven, we use negative language? So we are uh, corporeal. God is non-corporeal. We're physical. God is unphysical. We, we use all these negative terminology. God and heaven, God is not less than us. He's more than us. God is not impersonal. He's transpersonal, right? So just, just that nugget makes you stop. And, and and the reason I say I think it's worse in, in England is because uh, it seems that even that N.T. Wright uh, had a hard time convincing the British that we are not disembodied angels in heaven. A lot of Americans got messed up on that because we watch It's a Wonderful Life, which is such a great movie. Uh, but it seems like the British are even more into this nonsensical notion that in heaven we're, we're souls. And like, no, Heaven is a physical place. It's not less than the earth. It's more than the earth. Uh, and so, just like I said, there, there's so many nuggets uh, of, of gold in there that, that you need to read. I mean, Lewis is one of the few writers that you can read everything and not get bored. There's very few. Shakespeare is one of the other ones. I, look, I, I love and I've written about Wordsworth and Tennyson. You can read too much Wordsworth and Tennyson. You can read too much <laughs> Uh, and there are boring bits in Milton. There are even boring bits in Homer, right? But what the heck? It's unbelievable how almost every Lewis book is is fresh and full of vivid ideas and worth reading at some point. Uh, but, you know, if you want to do the more academic stuff, start with the essays because, you know, you can read one at a time and dig into there. Uh, a good place to begin where Lewis really tweaks your brain, but in a, sl- in a short essay is the famous Meditations in a Toolshed. A lot of people like that one because it gets you thinking about the difference at looking at and looking along. That's a pretty deep philosophical distinction, but Lewis does it. And then you'll take that and you'll kind of read it into other things uh, that you read by Lewis. And that's fun. I mean, Lewis, like the Bible, you need to read it with cross references. Oh, yeah. I saw that here. I saw that there. Go back and forth. That's why it's good to read a lot of Lewis uh, over a summer. Then you'll start seeing the cross-references that draw it out. And then you'll see, oh, this is what Lewis really is concerned about. But he says it in all different ways, which is wonderful. Hmm. You are actually one of the handful of people that I reached out to, I think towards the end of our first season, asking for some critical feedback. And I remember that was your chief piece of advice to us to start cross-referencing as we were, say, going through mere Christianity to point to, well, this is kind of like in Screwtape. This is kind of like in The Great Divorce. Um, And I hope it's something that we have taken to heart. But I want to tap your brain a little bit because this season we are going through Out of the Silent Planet. And you have a chapter on it in your book, C.S. Lewis for Beginners. So I wanted just to give you like five or 10 minutes. What are a couple of key things you think 
either someone should know about before reading the book or things to pay attention to while they're reading or some of the things that they should start seeing in this work by Lewis. Okay, first of all, and you know, I've grown up saying space trilogy, and if I slip, I, I know that Michael <laughs> Ward is going to come punch me on the nose. No, no judgment here. Stickups. We're supposed to say ransom trilogy, or or some call it the um, cosmic trilogy, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, why should we not call it the space trilogy? Okay, and Michael Ward mentions this, and this I always quote this whenever I talk about it. When okay, ransom is this you know very modern. Uh, what do you want to say? Materialistic thinker. I mean, I mean philosophical materialistic thinker. Uh, all there is is nature. He's a naturalist. Right? And when he go, he's kidnapped and he's taken on the spaceship. And as he goes to heaven, he expects to see nothing but dead, cold, empty space. And what he sees is that the cosmos is alive with life. That in some ways the planets were the the off dregs or something like that, and he looks out and he says, "Space is not the right word for this profundity. Better to call it the heavens." So what I and I call it the way I like to call this is that ransom gains a chest from that from the you know abolition <laughs> of man, and watch the change in him. Not only does he come alive to metaphysical realities. It's not just that. It's also, if you will, a romantic book because at first he thinks that the inhabitants of Malacandra or Mars, he thinks the inhabitants of Mars are primitive savages because they have no, quote, technology. And he thinks we can't learn anything from them. And then he stays with the Hrasa. They kind of look like big beavers and they're very Homeric and very, maybe Beowulf too, very epic uh, warriors. And he starts to realize that they've got a virtue that we lack. He opens his eyes and sees things that, again, that the Middle Ages uh, uh, you know, celebrated, but we don't. So I just want you to watch the way Ransom's eyes are opened and... He, he basically, his chronological snobbery is defeated. That's a phrase Lewis uses in Surprise, in Surprise by Joy. He learned it from Owen Barfield. Uh, and he started to realize that, you know, maybe all of our tech. And one of the best things Lewis ever wrote, okay, the bad guy's name is Weston. And Weston is trying to talk to the Oyarsa, the guardian spirit, but he doesn't know their language, old solar. And so Lew, uh, uh, Weston. I'm sorry, Ransom is forced to translate for him. And he speaks with such jargon and nonsense that he doesn't even know. And it's so funny. It's basically, you can read it together with uh, uh, Principles of Newspeak or uh, Politics in the English <laughs> Language by George Orwell uh, because it exposes the phoniness, right? And it, 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 like there's this long place where he celebrates all of our technology and how we must take you over. And basically, the only way Ransom can explain it is, uh, well, we have uh, cars that can move fast and objects that can pick up heavy things. And therefore, it is not a bad thing for us to kill you and take your planet. I mean, basically, it just breaks through the jargon and the nonsense and lets us see things for it. That, again, that's worth the whole thing. The other thing, if you want preparation uh, for Out of the Silent Planet, you might reread Plato's Republic. Because it turns out that Malacandra has a structure similar to Plato's ideal republic, right? You have three classes. 
you have the philosopher kings, right? The guardians. And they're very much like, the, well, the swords are like the, the guardians. And then the Oyarsa would be the single philosopher king over them, right? Then you've got the Hrasa who are like the auxiliaries or like the soldiers. They embody the, uh, the, the uh, classical virtue of courage or fortitude, whereas the other ones have wisdom. And then the third group, the Fiffeltriggy, which are like blue-collar frogs, they're like the artisans or the workers. And the point is they work together in harmony, not envying each other, but also not crushing each other. And see, Weston can't understand that. He's like, oh, they must be afraid of the Sorns and the Oyarsa, and that's why they follow them. He, he can't understand that there's any beauty in hierarchy. And especially if you're an American, you need to understand that there can be a beauty in hierarchy. And we better learn that because C.S. Lewis said, when we stop respecting kings, all we end up doing is respect, respecting rock stars and, well, he would call them footballers, so would you, uh, you know, athletes. <laughs> and so I, I, to me, it's very important. It, it, it's like taking a trip to the uh, a Renaissance Festival, if you've ever been to one of those where you understand the beauty of hierarchy. And it's really funny because a lot of the people that go to Renaissance festivals are completely woke people. But you know what? If you really want to understand the difference between boys and girls, go to a rent fest, okay? And see, see the men with their cod pieces and the girls dressed like bar wenches. And you'll say, I mean, just, but you'll understand the beauty of masculinity and femininity. And that's one of the things we learned and out of the silent play, we learned it even more in Paralandra. Uh, but oh, the, the one last thing that you really must notice, I think I talk about it in the book in the time I had, is there's two villains, Divine and Weston. Now, Weston is the more dangerous hero. Divine is just your typical hero. He finds out there's gold on Mars and he wants to take it. He's just your run-of-the-mill villain. Weston, though, is a far nobler person than Divine which makes him more noble, but it makes him even more corrupt. Because Lewis says, the higher up you go, the farther down you fall. Satan was not a simple crook who made it big. He was an archangel who fell. So Weston has the satanic energy. He is, he is uh, you know, the, the Nietzschean Superman. And it is his very nobility that makes him more dangerous because he believes that the only thing important is species survival. That, that, that's his uh, idol, if you will. And it's very noble to want to let the human race continue, but he has made it into an idol and he's willing to wipe out Malachandra in the name of this good things. That's why it's the 10 commandments, not the one commandment and the nine suggestions. You can't break all of them to do one. As Lewis says in the four loves, love when it becomes a god, becomes a demon. If we want to understand what that means, how the most dangerous politician, well, that's why even Lewis said, the worst tyrant of all is the religious tyrant because he's doing it for your own good, he has convinced himself, and he won't stop. At least the guy that only cares about money and power takes a vacation now and then. But if I'm the inquisitor and I'm doing it for the good of your own soul, I'll never stop. And the same thing happens with, you know, the, the what do you call it? Uh, okay, G.K. Chesterton once said, the definition of a humanitarian is someone who loves humanity but hates human beings. And that's exactly what Weston is. 
So th- th- those are some. I hope that's helpful. Uh, it's a very fast-reading book. It's most like an H.G. Wells sci-fi novel. It's Lewis's way of... See, if Lewis lived 300 years ago, he probably would have written something like Gulliver's Travels. Because when Jonathan Swift wrote that, there were still many parts of the world that were undiscovered, uh, at least by white people, that were undiscovered, right? And so you could go there to do a sort of, you know, semi-allegorical moral parable kind of thing. Can't do that anymore in the 20th century. So let's go to outer space and there we can work out what's really going on on the earth. Uh, and so that that's another way of thinking. And one last thing, the wonderful thing about those three books is they completely stand on their own, the, this Ransom Trilogy. Now, you should read it in the proper order, but you can actually pick up Paralandra and understand it fully on its own. Again, better to read it one, two, three, but you can do that. Just, just know that they are completely self-standing books, which is true of the Narnia books too, but read them in the proper order, please. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. Keep reading Lewis. And if you if you if you get bagged down, go pick up something else by Lewis. Again, don't don't feel like you have to read every single page. Uh there's even a few places, I think it's in Miracles, where he says, You can skip this chapter if it's a, he even says it in Rick Christianity. If you're not if you're not really yeah. interested, just skip ahead, skip on and go ahead. So he says that himself in many places. Uh and, and don't be intimidated. Okay, Lewis is there, he's accessible. Again, the best way to use my book. Read the whole thing and then say, circle, I want to read that book first. Right? I, I want to know more about that and go out and get that book. Now, there are some really good collections of Lewis. Uh, the best one is called The Signature. C.S. Lewis has a lot of books, but it's also nice to have single books. They're not that expensive. You can bend them back. You can you know, throw them in your car. You know, if, if it's a really big book, you might not throw it in your suitcase when you go on the plane or something. So it is also nice to have the individual books because I think you'll use them more rather than put them on your shelf to impress people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell the listeners where they can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of C.S. Lewis for Beginners? The best place is still go to Amazon.com, type in Lewis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S, Greek name, uh, and they've got all 25 of my books at Amazon. If you go to YouTube, you can put in my name as well and find my YouTube channel. Some of them I have masks on, but it'll make you be happy that we no longer live in the police state, uh, at least here in America. Um, and uh, like I said, that, that's probably the best the, the best place to start is with my Amazon author page. And I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Marcos for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, and particularly our top tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all of our prayer requests from the Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please pick up a copy of Dr. Marcus's book and perhaps gift it to a friend who has yet to meet C.S. Lewis. Please join us next time when we'll continue going further up And further in, cheers. Cheers.